Hey everybody, it's Jeremy for International Affairs. This is a new channel that we're starting, and I'm here with Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt and I are going to co-host this International Affairs channel, where it's our aim to talk about critical, important issues in international affairs, and kind of specifically narrow down and into national security intelligence uh, issues that affect us. Uh, I've had several people recently with all of the turmoil globally ask me based on our backgrounds ask me why should i care about these things these foreign policy issues and things that are happening overseas um with all of the domestic political infighting inflation things are out of control and people just want their lives what they perceive as back to normal uh and on top of all of that we've got chaos in the world order. So um, what's your take on international affairs, Matt? And I know you specifically have a lot of knowledge on Russia, Ukraine. That's kind of what we want to start this first episode about, a focus on that. Uh, it's a really important issue. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little bit about Russia, Ukraine, yourself, and I guess, what you, what you hope for our audience to learn from this channel. Certainly. Uh, so, so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Matt Thomas. Uh, Jeremy, I, Jeremy and I were colleagues uh, back getting our master's at uh, Texas A&M's Bush School of Government and Public Service. Ooh, yeah, right here in Aggieland. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so my background um, really goes, I guess I'll start with, I am... I am both a, a teacher and a foreign policy analyst. I teach uh, history uh, at a at a local private school here, and uh, and I write for Baltic Security Foundation and and have written for a few others, such as Foreign Policy Research Institute. Um, my primary focus is on Russia and Eastern Europe, particularly the Baltic Sea and Black Sea areas. Um, so, as as far as what we're we're really aiming for uh, with this channel is is we want to show why international affairs really does matter uh, for for day-to-day -day life and and how uh, it really impacts everything in the world around us right and and so with that aim in mind what we're what we're looking at for why does international affairs matter and why do we care what's going on in the world is is really how does that impact each and every one of us as a whole and it does right so i always tell my students especially when we get to world war 1 and world war 2 you know right. we we are seeing really in america right now kind of this isolationist moment in in our uh, internal politics and and I tell my students you know every time that you want to say you know not my circus not my monkeys right, right? right. the monkeys find a way to make you part of their circus right. <laughs> and, yeah. and we are exactly and so we look at you know things like the Zimmerman telegram or Pearl Harbor and you see how no matter what we try to do to stay away and stay uninvolved they find a way to involve us right, right? so as a result, international affairs, not only does it affect everything from 
internal economic issues uh, to uh, to every kind of uh, what sort of situation that you're going to find yourself in, lest there be a war somewhere, right? Uh, can run the gamut between those, but it can also affect you know everything related to you know unemployment and uh, sure. certain certain domestic policy issues, uh, health crises, and other kinds of things. So, international affairs is something that really is is interconnected with domestic policy, and and you really can't quite separate them as much as we would sometimes like to. Right. Especially, um, you know, the past 30, 40 years, everything's mm-hmm. become so much interconnected, so much more interconnected. Uh, and we rely on foreign partners economically and for security alliances and other interests overseas and abroad. And so uh, we're at a juncture now in time to where we are so interconnected that we see, uh, just for example, with COVID-19 and the supply chain disruptions, uh, logistics issues that we're still experiencing today uh, here at home because we no longer produce those things. We no longer make those goods. We may have lost some of that manufacturing knowledge. We don't have that skilled labor anymore. That's all been outsourced over a period of 30, 40 years at our own choosing to allow those things to go. But that's why in some way, international affairs really matters because it touches every aspect of our life. Um, And so specifically today, Russia, Ukraine, we want to hit on that topic and have a discussion. So it's awesome that Matt is uh, an expert in Russia, Ukraine issues and the Baltics, and that in future episodes, we'll have on other guests and we'll talk about other issues such as China, Iran, North Korea, and so on and so on, because right. there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> you will never exhaust the topics that are available. <laughs> right. Um, and so Russia, Ukraine, where, you know, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking when I started getting really up to speed on international affairs in 2014 in regards to Russia, Ukraine, you know, we have the breaking news coverage that you've got these little green men, you've got, um, you know, the, the Ukrainian president, was it prime minister and president? One of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, President Poroshenko and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yanukovych. Yanukovych. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of getting ousted in 2014, right. mm-hmm. exiled to Russia. There was a lot of uh, politics between those two countries at play. Uh, but then we have the annexation of Crimea. Mm-hmm. And so do we need to... Can, do we start at 2014 or do we need sure. to go back to explain succinctly why Russia and Ukraine and what's happening today matters. I mean, to a certain degree, you could go back all the way to 1932. You could go back to 1918. But um, I guess it, would, it wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of begin at 1991. Okay. Right? The Soviet Union is collapsing, and Gorbachev, uh, Gorbachev is, is trying to... Um, Sorry if my my pronunciation of Russian words is, your, is a little foreign, yeah. right? Um, so that is part of my background. Uh, I I learned Russian while while in school. That's exciting. So <laughs> I wish I knew Russian. Uh, so if my pronunciation is a little a little strange, uh, that's why. Um, with when when Gorbachev was in in power, right? He is 
trying desperately to save the Soviet Union. And, and he's going one minute into moves that are liberating people, and the next minute he's going into this kind of hardline reaction mode. And so there's this, this chaos and confusion, but ultimately he's not able to save the Soviet Union like he wanted to. In fact, he just accelerates its demise. Right. And out of that, Ukraine emerges as a free and independent country, right? So through that time, Ukraine has to figure out, okay, what path do we want to take? Do we want to follow a more Eastern Eurasian Russian model or do we want to line ourselves up more with the West, right? And the country was pretty much split 50-50 for, for a good portion of that time between 1991 and 2014. Okay, so mm -hmm. I'll interrupt. So mm -hmm. uh, saying maybe about 50% mm -hmm. um, felt they belonged more to Russia or the former Soviet Union than this new country, Ukraine. Right. At least in, in terms of what the electorate, you know, election results were right. showing and, and things like that, it would flip back and forth and back and forth and okay. back and forth. Right. And some of this, of course, was organic and some of it was efforts by the Russians to kind of try to keep what it's, you know, it's existing neighbors in its right. own orbit. Okay. Right. So, so we can't, generalize quite to the point that that we would say that it's exactly 50 50 okay. in in terms of what society is but that's what the election results were generally showing and some of that there's there's multitude of factors right. uh, that go into sure. go into all of that but uh anyhow typically what was happening was that the east and southeast of the country would kind of vote for pro-russian parties and the north and northwest uh would vote for kind of pro-western parties and it would flip back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, right? Yeah. So then enter onto the scene Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and Yanukovych comes in in what was largely kind of decried as a corrupt uh, election that was sort of bought and sold, right? And, and he is firmly a pro-Russian candidate. He starts enacting primarily pro-Russian policies, and the endemic corruption that had come out of the Soviet era uh, gets worse under Yanukovych. Okay. Right? And this actually is where you get a lot of the beginnings of some of the scandals that are, are still haunting us now sure. right. uh, in, in our political scene is during the Yanukovych regime. So Yanukovych comes in and things are getting worse. And by and large, the, the Ukrainian people are starting to... Uh, go more solidly on the side of seeking a pro-Western route. They're sick of the corruption. They're sick of the, the lack of direction for their country. Uh, they, they want to have a vision for what the future would hold. And most of them at this point have had access to the West, and they want that model instead. Right. Okay. Right. So this is, is building through, uh, through the Yanukovych era. And by 2014, you have these mass protests uh, called the Maidan, right? And the Maidan was really about uh, free and fair elections, right? Getting rid of a lot of the endemic corruption and establishing a path towards a more Western democratic republic kind of system okay. right? in, in Ukraine. So Yanukovych gets ousted. He decries it as a coup, um, 
But uh, and then the Russians take that narrative and continue to to try to delegitimize the so uh, a coup mm-hmm. perpetrated by the West because exactly right, mm-hmm. you know um, this uprising right they want Western values they want access to the Western markets the Western way democracy right. is right. freedom mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. okay. So, so yeah, it, it's kind of another Berlin Wall moment with the Euromaidan in, in 2014, right? And, and Yanukovych and the Russians and their allies kind of denounced this as some kind of illegitimate hostile takeover of power orchestrated by the CIA and other kinds right. of things, right? You get all sorts of conspiracy theories going along with it. Um, some of them may have some basis in truth, right. um, but, uh, but the amount that, that we can really say on some of that... We don't know, right? Right, right? So we have, as we're as we're moving through that time frame, Russia is getting more and more and more anxious about losing Ukraine in its orbit. So it it wants to control everything that happens in its near abroad, right? And it already doesn't like that the Baltics, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia have firmly gone over into Western institutions, right? And, and they want to prevent Ukraine from being able to do the same thing. And so in order to kind of make sure that that doesn't happen, they're trying to manipulate all the outcomes in Ukraine. They want to keep Ukraine corrupt. They want to keep Ukraine with, with no real sense of direction. They want to make sure that it remains mediocre, right? So they're, they're getting involved, and you start to have uh, the the breakaway republic phenomenon in in the donbass and then you have the annexation of of crimea okay. as well and and you get the invasion into the donbass uh region in eastern ukraine which was particularly difficult for the ukrainians because this is a major industrial region where you have a lot of heavy industry that contributes quite a bit to their economy so this was a big blow okay. right uh, enter again onto uh, onto the scene after Yanukovych. You have a series of uh, of elections, and out of that, uh, Petro Poroshenko uh, ends up becoming the new president of Ukraine, and he he is a businessman by origin, right, and and has some history in politics. He goes forward and he sets out to kind of clean up some of the corruption that okay. was endemic in Ukrainian politics. And this is post-2014. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for right now, I'm kind of sticking on on the, the domestic issues within Ukraine itself okay. um, before we get into the actual invasions and all of that, okay. just putting right. it into context. Sure. Uh, so, so Poroshenko comes in and, and he wants to try to clean up some of the corruption as well. Right. And and to move Ukraine into a more Western direction, moving it towards potential NATO membership, moving it towards potential EU membership, things like that, which uh, at this point in time, to also add some more context, France and Germany are vehemently opposed to both of those things. And that will be important later. Okay. Um, So. As as Poroshenko is going forward, he's having a really, really hard time combating the issues that had been deep set through the Yanukovych regime and really all the way back to the Soviet era. And he's largely unsuccessful at weeding out the corruption. 
And he'll have numerous investigations, right, into different things, but a lot of this ends up getting stymied. It's unsuccessful at times. And one of the big ones, again, is one of these scandals that haunts us today, the Hunter Biden scandal. Right. Uh, so we can talk about that as well as we, as we move forward uh, sure. in, in this and how it all relates. Right. Uh, so that we get that historical context and understand where it falls in the timeline and and what actually happened. Yeah. Um, so that's going on during, you know, bridging the gap between Yanukovych and Poroshenko. And Poroshenko starts to try to investigate things, but he's getting squashed, right? Eventually, the Ukrainian people in the next series of elections, right, um, they decide that they want someone new, a fresh face, right? And you have this actor, a comedian, who has played the role of the president on a popular sitcom, right? Volodymyr Zelensky. And he is going to uh, come in onto the scene promoting an anti-corruption campaign, and he wants to end the conflict in the Donbass, right? And so he'll be wildly popular right. and, and emerge onto the scene as this kind of charismatic leader. At first, he starts out really pretty naive, and, and there is kind of a sad but funny irony in that his last name is derived from the word for green. Okay, so, all right. <laughs> kind of like a greenhorn, yeah. right? And, uh, and so you have, uh, you have this guy who is green at politics, right? He's, he's new to it, and... He's, he's making some mistakes here and there, but eventually he kind of, as he gets his feet wet, he's starting to become a, a more effective leader, a more effective figure in, in politics. And he wins a second mandate in the next line of elections to, to be the president again, right? And now we get to April of 2021. The Russians start moving groups and supplies and uh, in medical uh medical supplies medical personnel right various uh food supplies all kinds of things that you would need to launch some kind of uh some kind of action against another country right, right? right. and so as as they're doing this the world is watching and going what's going on here right and the Russians are going to be able to pass it off as, oh, we're just doing mobilization exercises sure, and, yeah. and so on and so forth, right? But they do it remarkably quickly. And then when they pull away from the borders around Ukraine, they leave a lot of stuff behind. Right. right? right. <laughs> so at that point, I predicted that, yes, something is coming within the next couple of years, right? Right. So... So we have, uh, at this point, we have lots of troops and supplies that we have seen can be rapidly mo mobilized to the border, right? But everybody's just kind of downplaying this, like, oh, it's just the Russians doing Russian things, right? right? Um, it, they're, they're trying to make sure that there's, you know, we're burying our head in the sand yeah, in, right. in this particular moment. And Ukraine was no different. Uh, they they were used to these kinds of activities from the Russians, and so they didn't really think that anything big was coming. Status right. quo, typical provocation. Exactly. Um, but the the issue that so many people missed was they left so much stuff stationed behind, right? 
And the way that they, they did it, it was set up to where they could more or less launch a blitzkrieg okay. uh, kind of action against, against Ukraine. Right, so you get moving forward into the next year, everybody's thinking, you know, nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to happen. Oh, wait, is something going to happen? And then February comes in in February of last year, and they they launched that and that had, blitz yeah. That, yeah that blitzkrieg, which ultimately failed in its primary objective. But uh, now we're mired in this longstanding war of attrition here in Ukraine. Okay, so mm-hmm. if it if we can take a couple of things that you said, um, and it, it opens up a whole another can of international affairs theory and things, but mm-hmm. people might want to know why um, was Russia fed up with Ukraine or why did they feel they need to take some type of action against Ukraine? Uh, and so this kind of starts to open up the idea of um, I guess, great power politics mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, why, why does any country feel the need to take action against another country? Uh, but in this particular case, Russia, Ukraine, if you can explain generally why Russia needs to have anything to do with Ukraine. Okay. So Russia... We kind of, at, at this juncture, you know, you can go back into ancient Russian history. You can talk about the Mongol invasions and whatnot and the, the problems of Russian geography, right? It, it's been an invasion-prone territory for, for quite some time. And historically speaking, it tends to be kind of paranoid about its neighbors and about uh, ensuring its security, right? You can go all the way back to that. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, can, this, mm, this is... How does Russia ensure their security? Right. And they and, feel they need mm-hmm. to expand their influence in order to protect what they have. Right. And, and so in, in all of this, you have this longstanding history of Russian imperialism going all the way into the Soviet era, even as they're in their propaganda and denouncing imperialism, right? They're imperial by nature as well. Right. right. So they're trying to make sure that they are constantly expanding and constantly increasing their power in order to ensure their security. Now, what the, the kind of hardcore realists like, um, like the, the Mearsheimers of the world, right. right, whom you've probably heard in some of the news articles lately, uh, they're going to blame the West for, uh, for what Russia is doing because they will say that we've threatened Russia by expanding NATO and and whatnot. Um, What they get wrong in that is that the the growth in in NATO is is based on a principle of self-determination, right? Mm -hmm. This was done at the by the choice of the countries involved, right? We didn't try to expand it ourselves. It wasn't some kind of campaign against Russia in, in order to do so. Right. Nor were there any agreements like uh, like so many people claim that Gorbachev was was promised that NATO wouldn't expand. That right. that didn't happen. Right. Right. So so all of this is is playing into it. But by and large, what we really need to look at here 
in in this context is Putin himself, right? Okay. So Putin is an ex KGB officer, right? From the the Soviet era. I heard a killer and a thug. Uh huh. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. And and he is, you know, that's his mindset, right? He is, you know, not necessarily ideologically married to communism or anything of of that nature, but he is married to the idea of the Soviet Union, and he considers the fall of the Soviet Union to be the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Right. Right. So this is who we're dealing with, right? And and he is, at the end of the day, revisionist in, in his outlook towards great power politics. He wants to reverse the outcome of the Cold War and bring Russia back onto the forefront. And one of the ways in which he can do that is by amassing more territory, amassing greater control, right? And, and essentially, what he wants to do is push you know, Western powers out. He wants right. to intimidate uh, Western powers into staying out of world affairs in order that he can kind of maintain that power and control. Right. Yeah. So this kind of brings up also, uh, you know, the idea of a zero sum game, right? Mm -hmm. uh, any, any traction or step that the West makes, right. Is a loss. He sees it as a loss to Russia. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. uh, and any step that Russia makes is a loss and a detriment to the United States and the West and our allies. And um, so a lot of international affairs uh, theories can explain why what's happening is happening. Now let's go back. Um, so Russia feels threatened from the West. Expansion of the West and military alliance, NATO, security alliance. At least so they say. So they say, right. Mm -hmm. uh, Putin um, is nostalgic for mm -hmm. the Soviet Union and uh, is doing what he can to gain that back. Right, and, uh, and rehabilitate it in the public image, right? He's, especially surrounding the World War II era, he has tried to rehabilitate the image of Joseph Stalin, uh, eliminate the history of the gulags, uh, things like that. And, and Russians are... Uh, as a result of a lot of the effective propaganda uh -huh. that he's used, they're very obsessed with with World War II, um, and the average Russian uh, believes more or less that Western countries did nothing in World War II and that they defeated Nazi Germany on their own. Right. right? Yeah, so right. you have you have this kind of um, you have this kind of false reality okay. that is um, that is at play as well in the mindset of of Putin. He's essentially living in a, a world of make-believe, and he wants to make that into the reality, sure. right? And for him, right, he largely feels threatened by the West because he projects his own intents and his own aims right. onto, uh, right. onto the West, right? So it's a, a failure of understanding uh, sure. in, in that particular, uh, particular context. There's a the issue of threat perception right. uh, comes up, and so you have uh, you have more or less, you know, somebody who is very threatening that claims to feel threatened. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. we have then Russia 
feeling threatened, this idea of a zero-sum game, if they're not gaining, somebody else is going to gain, or vice versa. So, and with them sharing a border with Ukraine, uh, we see that that could make sense, Mm -hmm. right? But now the question comes up, Mm -hmm. why do we not just let Russia have Ukraine and keep from happening what is happening, which is uh, everybody getting drug into something that we don't want to have to deal with, um, and people here at home don't understand. Okay. So looking at why, why Ukraine actually matters to, uh, to us at home, right? A lot of, of what we see in, in current American politics is either A, a, a tendency towards wanting to leave international affairs completely, right? We've had, we've had uh, issues related to prolonged conflicts in the Middle East, and, and people are really weary of, right. of international issues, right? On top of that, you can also have kind of the complacent attitude uh, as well, which says we're doing all the best that we can, and we, we you know, you know, congratulations to us, right, right? right? These these kinds of things, and so you have these two kind of mentalities going on uh, domestically as well, that are are really kind of unhelpful, right? right? When when looking at when looking at this issue, so what do we do about it, right? Why why are those mentalities unhelpful, and and what uh, what should we do instead, right? That kind of becomes the question, right? And at the end of the day, right, you, you have this basic kind of principle of you can go back to any of the, the realism, you can go back to liberal idealism, you can go back to constructivism, all these, these different uh, vocabulary terms that you can throw around and, and right. theories. But at the end of the day, what, uh, what we really seek in, in America and, and from kind of that values-based perspective, right, where you can kind of blend a lot of the ideas, right. Um, is is that we want to see a world that is safe for people to exercise self determination and and freedom, right? Um, going beyond the values uh, based into more hard uh, hard asset realism right. kind of things. There's certain you know commodities. There's certain economic issues. There's certain um, you know even going down to war strategy issues that for safety and security, both uh, conventional military issues, economic issues, right? Uh, those kinds of things, there's certain assets that different countries have that, that matter to us in, in American interests, right? right? Yeah, I kinda, mm-hmm. so I kind of see it as, um, you know, Sovereignty, the idea that yeah. mm-hmm. we are sovereign and are able to make our own decisions and determinations. Uh, and the only way we maintain that ability to make our own decisions and keep our 
homeland and people safe and maintain sovereignty is through security. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, the only way to maintain security is to have influence amongst these other players. Uh, you've got mm -hmm. a chessboard of state actors that are free to do whatever they choose and suffer the consequences of whatever global coalition or the international community throws their way, which keeps a lot of things in check and in line. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, at the end of the day, the strongest is going to have the most power, influence, and win. And us here in the West believe that our way of life and our way of government is best. And we should offer or allow everybody to experience the freedoms that we have and the value we place on humanity and life dignity, respect. Uh, so. Right. And, the, the, and you kind of have the question of, well, if not us, then who? And right. that, so that's, if not us, then who? And, and is then the, the who answer we want? Exactly. Is it, is it us or is it going to be Russia or China right. or, or Iran? Right. Somebody that is, is going to um, export by force right. their values. And, you know, we see this and the, the, the lead up to World War II, for example, right? You have you have Britain pursuing the policy of appeasement, right? As right. as Chamberlain tries to, you know, just let you know Hitler take the Sudetenland and have the Anschluss with Austria and 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 so forth. And they they thought that you know at some point Hitler would be satisfied, right? But no, that's not going to be the case with right. with somebody like that. And and so you have the issue of uh, protecting, you know, humanity and the rule of law around the world, right? Uh, lots of people say, you know, we don't want to be the world's policemen. We hear that all of all right. the time. But again, the question is, if not us, then who? Right. Right. And and, and so, mm -hmm. a move in in the Russia Ukraine issue for the everyday person to understand, mm -hmm. right? The moves that Russia is making is in an attempt to diminish American influence which threatens our security, mm -hmm. threatens our way of life, and potentially, ultimately, sovereignty of our country and any other state in the way of Russia's aggression. Exactly. And, and so when you are faced with this kind of aggression where one state is allowed to violate the sovereignty unchecked. of another state, unchecked, right, they're not going to stop. They're going to keep violating the sovereignty of other states, just as Hitler with Austria and Czechoslovakia and then Poland, right? Right. In, in 1938, 1939, right? So, so you have uh, that same principle at play here, right? And on top of that, you also have the issue of deterrence, right? And this is where, where we really failed in, in 2022, is that we were no longer setting up any kind of effective deterrence, right? We did not signal that we had either the will or the means. You know, we had the means, but right. we didn't have the will, right, right? To, to combat a Russian invasion of, of Ukraine or re-invasion because they already invaded it, right? right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so we had shown that we didn't have the will to do that, and we did that by doing things like 
removing sanctions on on the Russo-German pipeline project Nord Stream 2. We did that by uh, by pulling troops out of Poland and restationing them back in Germany and continuously siding with Germany when when that state is the one that gave us the the concept of of Schroederization, right? Uh, which which basically is is named for a former German chancellor who's now the head of of a major Gazprom okay. Russian project, okay. right? Right. <laughs> so to to give that uh, that context there, right? So that idea is something called state capture, where you corrupt a country's political elite in order to more or less pull the strings like a, a puppeteer, sure. right? Yeah. In in that country, at least within one major sector of the economy. So, so we're starting to side with a, a country that is recalcitrant and, and does, not, um, does not support uh, many of the major goals of the organization, NATO, that it's a, a part of, right? And, and so we are signaling, at this point, we're signaling a, a radical shift away from focusing on what we had promised to Eastern Europe and in their peace and security, right, protecting their sovereignty. So we let our deterrence down, and Afghanistan played a role in that as well. It showed that we didn't have the will to be involved in international affairs, that we were no longer, uh, we no longer had the stomach for it. And, and that was a big signal to, right. to Vladimir Putin that, okay, we're not going to do what needs to be done about this. Um, so, so this... You can really chalk what happens in 2022 up to a failure of deterrence, right? Okay. We didn't show that we were going to take this seriously, right? And, and so that is a big part of the issue here, right? We're signaling military weakness and a, a lack of willingness to be involved. On top of that, Ukraine is a vital player in the world economy, particularly with food production. Right. So it is the breadbasket of Europe. It's also one of the breadbaskets of the world, right? And the grain harvest is vitally important to the world economy. So dealing with the possibility of a destroyed Ukrainian grain harvest means hunger in places like Africa and places uh, in, in Asia, right? Which is greater instability, more fires, uh, greater problems. Exactly. When you, have, when you have economic conditions, especially dealing with hunger and poverty, right, you create the conditions for more instability politically, more, uh, you know, bad governments right, to, right. to come onto the scene, right? Uh, that will that will be uh, criminal in their in their nature towards sure. their own people and towards the rest of the world. Yeah. Right. So you have that at issue at play. You also have energy policy in the rest of Europe. Uh, as a result of the Soviet era, lots of gas pipelines go through Ukraine into Europe. Right. And and this has fueled Ru uh, Europe's dependence on on Russian energy supplies. But this threatens to uh, reduce stability in Europe as a whole. So you're, you've got all kinds of different moving parts sure. to this thing sure. that, uh, that create lots of, of sticky situations geopolitically. And then you also have the, the human element, right? You have this 
massive loss of life, right? That didn't need to happen. Right. And, and you have uh, the Russians bombing maternity wards, uh, shooting at the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, right? right? You have various crimes against humanity going on, right? And, and yes, in war that happens on both sides. But what we're seeing is that when, when the Ukrainians do it, they punish those responsible. Right. When the Russians do it, they encourage more, right? right? Yeah. So, so what model do we want to, to promote in the world, right? right. And, and do we want a system where might makes right? Or do we want a system uh, where, where we have set rules and, and somebody to enforce them, right? right. So from there... It again draws back to the question of of our own security, right? And if if we don't want these things to happen to us, right, we have to make sure that it's not okay for right. it to happen. So you have to signal that military strength and that that willingness to be involved in order to prevent a Russia or a China or an Iran from being able to run amok, right? Yeah. These are rogue regimes. Right. And, yeah. and that's just the reality of it. Right. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, and so that really does kind of answer why it's very complex, but why, it, but it can be broken down into something simple, right? Mm -hmm. Why does the U.S. or the West care about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine? A lot of great historical context. Um, there's plethora more of uh, historical context that could be provided. Mm -hmm. um, but it really comes down to sovereignty, security, and how each state individually is going to maintain their security and by doing so ensures their sovereignty. Exactly. So, and, um, and protects human life in the process. And, and right, protects human life in the process. Uh, and so... That's really why Russia-Ukraine matters to the United States. Uh, but then there's also a school of people that will say maybe the, the world order needs to change, right? Uh, maybe Russia's not as bad as they're portrayed to be. Yes, and war people die, but governments all across the globe are taking economic advantage of the things that they need are loaning money to countries that may not be able to pay back those loans in order for them to hold hostage these countries into particular agreements. Uh, so a lot of people could argue, uh, you know, Russia's not doing anything that the United States wouldn't do if the United States felt ultimately threatened. Uh, which is complex and difficult. Um, so what that one comes down to really is, is the issue of, of state behavior and intent, right? Uh -huh. um, the, the worldview of the United States versus the worldview of Russia is, is an entirely different one. And even, even when we have presidents of different political parties and of, of different uh, worldviews from each other, right? The, the basic worldview of the United States is not uh, one that seeks after imperialism. Right. And 
whereas the the Russian worldview seeks to basically extend its power at at any cost, right? And and it doesn't value that human life, right? Right. It doesn't value the the sovereignty of other nations, only its own, right? And and so you have. Uh, more or less apples and oranges whenever you're looking at, uh, at something like uh, we've heard before the, the objection that, well, the United States would do that in Mexico. Well, right. No, right. right. <laughs> it, it wouldn't right for, for that reason. Right. It's an entirely different uh, worldview. Right. So the, the Russian kind of view on, on that is, is more or less that that we have the right to interfere in sure. in everything in our other countries near us, and they don't have the right to self determination. The United States view is okay. Yes, we have the right to interfere from time to time whenever things are are clearly going wrong. Right. But these countries have the right to self determination, and they have the the basically the principle of sovereignty right. again comes comes in this and. And so the United States uh, is is really looking at a a respect to sovereignty, whereas Russia is is not right, right. and China is not right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's excellent. Um, and so I think that that at least uh, answers that basic question: why Russia and Ukraine and the conflict matter to the United States and everybody here uh, at home. Um, and so it's kind of the question that I had today, um, and I'm glad you were able to answer it. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add regarding Russia, Ukraine and why it matters? Sure. Um, so looking at our, our domestic political affairs, right? Russia, Ukraine is, is going to be a continued hot button issue um, in, in our politics and Russia is also going to pay attention to that. So ever since the Soviet period, Russia has sought a policy whereby it seeks to, you know, undermine the political situation of, of countries that it perceives to be its, uh, its adversaries or that it wants to, you know, in the Soviet context, it wanted to spread communism around right. the world, right? In, in the modern context, it, it seeks to essentially destabilize uh, any country that it, it considers itself to be at war with, right? So as, as we've been kind of snoozing since the end of the Cold War and right. trying to figure out what, what we're actually doing. Um, Unfortunately. Right? Yeah. From, from that time period, even going back to, to Yeltsin, and uh, in 1994, you have the the same concept of destabilizing other countries in in Russia's near abroad right with the Transnistria issue in Moldova and that's another that's another right. sticky one to to talk about uh, at another time as well but uh you have this background of of Russia seeking to destabilize countries in order to promote its own right. stability uh, I mean, any, and any, power any mm-hmm. instability they create just Props increases their stability and or prowess and power. Exactly. And, and so on top of that, whenever it, you know, Russia has considered itself 
at war with the United States. You know, that never ended. And, and so we are more or less in this ongoing, what, what they call hybrid war, Uh right? Which basically is just everything Everything. short of conventional war, right? It's, it's your cyber attacks. It's your sabotage. It's your psychological operations. It's your interfering with elections. It's all of these kinds of, uh, all of these kinds of issues fall under hybrid warfare. It can even be things like, um, you know, cutting undersea cables for, for communications, right? Everything falls under that umbrella and it's able to fluctuate the intensity of that conflict uh, throughout that time as it sees fit, right? So Russia has been in a cold war with us again, really it's never stopped, Right. right? And so that is, is also at play. And what Russia wants to do in American society and in American politics is create an even bigger divide than we're already seeing, right? Sure. And, and to a certain degree, this is the, the actions of the Soviet Union that as, you know, even though it itself is in the grave, it's right. trying old, to... Old it's, tricks. The old tricks yeah. are pulling us down with it, right? So, so from that time period... Uh, during the Soviet era, it they they sought to really push the political left further left, right, and and so they really focused on on that avenue of of uh, political influence and political interference, right, and they did it through organizations like the Comintern and through military intelligence on a a post Soviet era, right. They say, okay, we've already pushed the left way over here. Now we got to work on the right. right. And so what, in, in my analysis, I, we're seeing is that really you're, you're getting a split in the right between kind of the old right. conservative um, Cold War era kind uh-huh. of, of, of leadership versus a newer, more isolationist, um, unwilling to be involved in, in foreign affairs type of uh type of rift right and so you're seeing that split to where you have one party that's way over here and then one party that can't agree with itself right right? yeah and so if it can create more and more of that political instability political chaos then our own system is more and more dysfunctional right yeah and so that's another angle for for why it matters right yeah, so I was actually reviewing uh, the National Security Strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was published in October of 2022 uh, out of the White House, and then also the Intelligence Community's Threat Assessment uh, that was recently released. Uh, and they both talk about the malign influence of Russia uh, and interference in elections, right? Any instability they create, they're going to attempt to take advantage of the instability. and uh, and the, the chaos that they create, right? It gives them a door in or multiple angles to work off of when... Uh, and the ultimate objective is to weaken our ability to act. Right, right. Uh, and that may, have ha- that may have contributed to some of what's happening already, mm-hmm. may have not, um, but they are... Are, are definitely at play and exactly. attempting to mm-hmm. destabilize mm-hmm. not only the United States, but other countries. Right. And these tactics are nothing new, right? right. It's, it's what the Soviets were doing to us and it, they're, they're doing this now. Right. And, and another thing to, to bear in mind is that Russia 
no matter how much it tries to purport itself in order, again, looking at ways that it can try to split the right, right? right? Um, it likes to try to present itself as this protector of, of traditional values right. and things like that. This is baloney, right? right? Yeah. Um, Russia has been one of the world leaders in abortion and other things for generations, right? And, and so you can, you can throw that out the window. But also, Russia supports anybody that is against us, right? right? It supports Iran. It supports China. It supports Venezuela. It supports Cuba, Nicaragua, right? right. On and on and on right. and on, right? Uh, and, and likewise, um, it, it supports countries that are state sponsors of terrorism, right. like Iran. Right. Right? Yeah. So, so you have, you know, no matter what Russia tries to portray itself as, right? You don't want to uh, to fall for that, right. Right. right? Or allow them to operate exactly uh, unhindered. Exactly right. They are, you know, they are a rogue regime. You have to you have to remember that, True. and and they support other rogue regimes in order to destabilize uh, the United States and and Western uh, the Western world itself, right? In in order to undermine our stability and our freedom, right? And um, you know, we're going to talk specifically about China another day, but as Russia attempts to destabilize the West and are becoming more and more aggressive uh, in their foreign policy and how they operate, and with us having some tensions and issues with China, now we have uh, the prospect, very real prospect of a far greater, stronger alliance uh, economically, militarily between China and Russia. And so it is critical that we don't allow Russia to gain additional strength or positioning that's, that makes them appear like a greater partner for China or like somebody that could benefit China's own ambitions of global domination. Exactly. Right? And, and you kind of have with, with Russia and China. Now, uh, to a certain degree, Russia-China alliances usually find a way to fall apart because one side, you know, rooks the other. Right. right? right. But, uh, but they, they frequently get back together. Right. And, and the reason is because they have a mutual enemy in us. Right. Right. And, and so they are, it's something to take very seriously that Russia and China axis could, uh, could very well become a, a key, you know, alliance in, in the future, right? That it could, that it could be something very powerful in world affairs. And it's already very powerful right. in the third world, uh, right. in, in places where you have major, uh, debt diplomacy and, and, um, from from the Chinese end, and then you have the Russians propping up various dictators, militaries, right? right. And so you have uh, you have that problem going forward. Is that the world that we want to see, right? right? Or do we want to deter that from from happening? Right. Yeah. And my vote is deter it from happening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so Russia critical. Um, what Russia is doing around the globe is critical, and I think it's important that everyday American citizens really understand, try to 
kind of tamp down or turn off for a moment the domestic political infighting and being you know covered in this molasses of political turmoil and unrest that's plagued our country as of recent uh, and is really a tool of the other side right? Yeah, right and and they can they can take aspects of it and you know distract from what actually happened right yeah in in order to achieve their objectives right, right? Yeah. but again the hunter biden scandal is a big uh, a big one right that happens under a pro russian president and and he's employed by a pro russian oligarch right. and and yet the russians are able to sell this as the biden family being bought and sold by ukraine and then you have other other political issues that go with it. So so we can see how the stories get twisted. Right. Well, mm-hmm. it did show, you know, let's go into that for a second then. Mm-hmm. So Hunter Biden, and I, at least my opinion, I want to try to not be uh, political here yeah, and stick yeah. to the facts. Mm-hmm. But the facts are, uh, with the Hunter Biden situation being hired as consultant and or to sit on boards of these companies um, brings into question our own issue of corruption here at home or uh, allowing Russia to corrupt us. Mm -hmm. And right. And the reason I bring it up um, again, uh, looking at it from an apolitical perspective is is to see how Russia is able to use that particular event against right. us, right? Right, and and in our political environment is able to weaponize that to create more infighting and more instability, more inability to act coherently, cohesively, and uh, and again eliminate our will to do what we would right. otherwise do to protect the sovereignty of another nation, right? So getting kind of back into the history of, of what actually happened, right? He's, he's hired as a, as a consultant um, in, in a major energy company right there in, in Ukraine. Right? At the time, you're in the middle of the Yanukovych regime. Yanukovych is, is firmly pro-Russian, right? He's doing nothing to combat corruption. He's actually increasing the corruption, okay. right? And you have various... Uh, people in his inner circle who are oligarchs that uh, are more or less in charge of major profitable industries and things like that. And this, this particular energy company is under a pro-Russian oligarch at the time. Okay. Right. And, and so Hunter Biden is, is employed by them. There's all kinds of shady deals going on. Uh, It gets flagged by the Latvian anti-money laundering agency of all, of all places. Right, uh, and after the Maidan, Poroshenko, uh, as as the new president of Ukraine, is investigating what's going on. the The United States, we're still in the Obama Biden administration uh-huh. at this point in time, and uh, we actually more or less told the Ukrainians to stop investigating this, or we will not help you with anything. Uh-huh. Um, so we blackmail them into stopping the investigation in, uh, into what Hunter Biden's activities were with that particular organization. Right. 
And essentially, we hear nothing more about it for until the last couple of years. Right. On top of that, um, then Vice President Biden was actually in charge of most of the Obama administration's foreign policy because they trusted him as the one who had the most experience in that area at that time. And he is the one who makes the decision in 2014 not to send lethal aid to Ukraine as they're being attacked by Russia in the Donbass, right? Uh, and then the Obama administration carries forward. They, they approve that policy and, and they move, uh, move forward from there. So you can see that all of this is not exactly what most people right. have heard at right. this point. We have a very short memory right. uh, on, on these things. Right? So, so those are the facts on hand, right? Uh, putting aside the, the political right. issues, you can see how different the story is now compared to what the reality was. Right. And, and how that's being used to help divide and, and affect our ability to make effective decision-making. Yeah, so do you think um, this is something the Russians intentionally game-planned and sought out, right? Imagine an an operation where a a covert action, right, where let's target this individual being Hunter Biden. Um, Let's offer this great deal with the pure intent of hoping it trickles down into uh, Americans becoming aware, right? That there is some type of, of political corruption, right? That would further divide. Uh, so I think to, to a certain degree, um, or is this just uh, Hunter Biden uh, or is it a just, Easy money, and they I, want the easy money. I think for a large, uh, to a large degree, it was on on that side. It was the easy money yeah. uh, initially, and and it was part of the corruption that was keeping Ukraine mediocre at that point right. in time. So it was related to uh, to Russia's Ukraine policy more, and now it's an opportunity to affect yeah. current American policy. Sure. As as we see that that is the the family that's in the White House, right? right? Yeah, and. Um, and so you have between that and then greenlighting Nord Stream 2 and, and other issues, uh, the Russians must be very happy with a lot of the decisions that we've been making lately. Right. Uh, on top of that, uh, to uh, again go into kind of my analysis on this, we're really not um, giving Ukraine any more than what it would take to lose more slowly. Okay. Right? So... Uh, so we're not giving them what they need to win, um, which is just prolonging, uh, prolonging the issue. Why are we not doing that? Uh, a lot from of your right, analysis. Uh, from that perspective, I think a lot of it has to do with fear of escalation. Uh, okay. And when you're too afraid of escalation, just like uh, Chamberlain, right. right? You get more escalation right. because you encourage that, right? You you show that you're not going to stand up to the bully, and so you keep getting bullied, right? Right. And this is, uh, and this is really kind of what's at play here is that you know we we signaled that you know, we're not 
we're not taking this seriously right. and, and we're not, um, you know, we're too afraid to make Russia mad. Uh, and so Russia basically gets to do what it wants until we decide that we're willing to make Russia mad again. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But we are pushing the issue deeper and deeper into a no return point. Exactly. Right? A zero mm-hmm. return option. Um, and so it, I, yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, other than being afraid to fully commit, mm-hmm. I do understand that. Um, because our decision makers have to answer for it, right? Exactly. And, and I don't envy them, right? I don't either. They, they have, you know, what is the balance that for what you're willing to, um, you know, how much money are you going to spend right. on this? And, you know, how much does that affect what we keep for our own security, right? right? Yes, this plays a role in, in both, but um, you, you've got to find a balance there somewhere. And, and I'm glad that I don't have to make that decision. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, uh, but at the end of the day, what, what, we, have, uh, what we have effectively signaled is, um, is that we're not going to deter, right? And, uh, and so uh, we're, we're basically, we're going to do what it takes to keep people happy here and keep ourselves getting elected, right? And right. then from there, we're not really focused on, on what the actual mission is, what is the actual objective, right? Um, Either that or our objective is something entirely different from victory. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, so, so we have a, uh, where we're basically locking ourselves into a quagmire. Right. And then I guess, you know, 20 years from now, whenever this issue's studied in classrooms at grad schools that teach international affairs, et cetera, um, it, there, there is, there are answers. There are no easy answers on what we could do now. But how do you square with the American people that we are in the position that we're in, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, Because exactly. there's a, a large part of the electorate that I think understands here at home that things are not great mm-hmm. uh, with all of the problems that we face, Russia being this specific one and people have heard about Russia for decades and decades and decades as a threat, mm-hmm. a threat, a threat, cold war's over, Cold war's really not over. Um, uh, and now Russia's becoming more aggressive. Uh, I think where it really hits home is, is we look at, okay, our own national security and uh, and protecting freedom and sovereignty here, right? And and how that affects the the rest of the world, right? And how the rest of the world affects us, conversely, right? right? Also, the other issue is okay, bringing it home. What happens when this thing explodes into something that's not just a regional right. conflict, right? And and what is going to happen then? Did we really actually prevent a war? And were we really, um, you know, going to save more lives by, by not getting involved? Or is it better to deter and prevent the war from happening in the first place, preventing even the regional conflict from happening in the first place? And so if we can, you know, signal to, to people that, you know, 
there are ways to, you know, nobody likes war, right? right. You know, even, even the so-called war hawks, right. right? Nobody actually likes war. War is something that is, you know, devastating. Yeah. And it affects lives of everyday, everyday people, right? At, at every turn. So if we don't want a situation where we end up stuck sending our, our sons and, and brothers and husbands and, and now daughters and wives and, and so forth to, to die in some, uh, some future conflict, well, how do you prevent that conflict from starting in the first place? Right. right? And, and that's more or less the answer um, is, is it goes back to we have to show that we have both the capacity and the will, right? Now, that's not to say that we don't sometimes spend too much money on things in, in our military-industrial complex and things like that. There are areas that, um, that are a boondoggle. Right. But if we, if we take a look at, um, at that particular issue, you, know, you want to project strength. You want to project uh, that you are capable, that you are innovative, uh, and that you are serious about protecting peace, right? right. It's basically peace through strength, right, right? Yeah. Is, is the idea. And throughout the Cold War, the American people bought into that, right? And, and so where, where we have uh, these issues now is that we are kind of trending back into the idea that if we just stay off in our own little corner, they won't bother us. But we found go away. Exactly. Yeah. We've found time and time again that that's not how it works. Sure. Right. Especially not when you're already established as a world power, right? Right. Because you are enemy number one to those who want to be in your spot. Right. Right. And do you want them there? Right. That's right. that's the question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So uh I think that kind of about wraps it up. It's easy to understand state sovereignty threats of to your security which could erode your sovereignty and why states do what they do uh that's playing out in russia ukraine that same theme is going to be playing out in all of the other hot spots around the world that we're going to discuss in future episodes and again uh, you know, it's, it, I guess, our intent to tr- try to keep it um, understandable for, for most people. And I think we did a great job here today doing that. Uh, so that wraps it up for International Affairs, mm-hmm. our first inaugural episode, I guess. Yes, uh, in, in plain language and, uh, and unpolished. <laughs> right, yeah, plain language, unpolished. Uh, these mm-hmm. videos aren't going to be highly produced or edited uh, mm-hmm. to, to the most, uh, to some extent. and. We hope to probably do a video maybe once a week mm-hmm. and bring in guests mm-hmm. and and show you what we think and what they think and hopefully enrich your understanding of the topic. Absolutely. So, Matt, you did a, a brilliant job explaining some of the context. I appreciate that. Um, honored to have you as a co-host here uh, on this show. Follow us on YouTube, mm-hmm. hashtag INTA now, International Affairs and keep track of what we're doing, and we'll see you guys later on. Thank you. All right.